Hey there, welcome to Night School. It's the Sunday edition, the Sunday papers here. The Sunday audio paper, that's what this is. It's an audio newspaper. And I'm about to tell you your horoscope. No, I'm going to tell you my horoscope. I thought my horoscope today was interesting. Uh, and, and just a note about horoscopes in general. You know, when you say that you read your horoscope, people have a tendency to make all kinds of assumptions, like you wholly believe in astrology, or you wholly believe in your daily horoscope. Oh my God, it's so true. Or that you're some kind of hypocrite who believes in astrology on the day, on the off day that your uh, horoscope ends up being accurate and then ignores it when it's inaccurate most days of the year. But every once in a while, it does cut to the bone. Every once in a while, your horoscope does hit upon something personal. But I just see horoscopes as kind of a fun, occasionally interesting little thing, and it's part of my morning ritual to check a couple of horoscopes. Pop horoscopes, pop astrology. I very rarely delve into anything deeper Unless someone's willing to do that for me. Like, a few years ago, I met a girl who is very deeply involved in astrology and all kinds of things. And she gave me a, a deep analysis of uh, just my, I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say, my astrological profile. Like, I think that's exactly what it's called. My astrological profile. Uh, she, she offered to give me a, like a report. It was really cool of her, actually, and it involved all kinds of things, like the time I was born, where I was born. It, it required all kinds of details. It's what they call data mining. She was doing a little data mining. But the result, I mean, I don't mind data mining if there's something interesting that comes from it. I think that's the problem with data mining, <laughs> just to, to go into data mining. I think the problem with data mining is we feel like it, you know it's being used against us in some sort of occult way. Because data mining is kind of a cult. Like, we don't know exactly what they're using, but we know that they're taking information from us and using it, which is really, you know, left-handed. It's very dark side, uh, you know, dark side of the occult, in my opinion, the idea of data mining. But anyway, this girl, she she did a little data mining and didn't ask for a ton of information. It's not like she didn't collect so much information about me that she knew my entire life history. It was just some basic things like where and when I was born, things like that. And uh, she gave me this report and it was actually in the form of a, she like typed up an entire PDF and it was shockingly accurate. Like, even stuff about my life, even stuff about my history, my personal history, was shockingly accurate. Is that always the case? Is everyone's astrological profile, their in-depth astrological profile, is it always totally right? I don't know. I don't really care. But I know in this instance, she gave me information. And it was pretty extensive. She put a lot of work into this thing. And uh, I was impressed by it. And I've had that experience more than once. That wasn't a one-off. It seems like actually any time I've met somebody who is deeply into astrology, whether they know me or not, they manage to give me a lot of valuable information that ends up being more accurate than not. And I go into it, you know, I wouldn't say with a skeptical mind, but definitely a critical mind. So it's not like I'm sitting there just waiting for... I don't think that I'm that biased when it comes to astrology, is what I would say. 
And as part of my morning routine, I check, I check like astrology.com, horoscope.com. And I do that very deliberately. It's like my friend who years back, I found out that he, <laughs> I don't know if he always checks it. I don't, I don't know what his routine is, but he had checked the onion, you know, the, the fake, uh, the very real paper, the very real newspaper, The Onion. No, the, the, you know, the, the annoying satire newspaper, The Onion. And he, they have a horoscope section, which I didn't even know. Of course they do. Of course they have joke horoscopes. Oh, The Onion's so clever. They're so clever. You know what I like about The Onion is they're so clever. Um, but he had checked that, and it gave him a highly specific daily horoscope that mentioned his ex-girlfriend's name who he was obsessed over and I know I've mentioned this before but it said you know you're gonna be so caught up in your own bullshit I don't think it said bullshit I don't know if the onion swears Uh, but it was was like you're gonna be so caught up in your own shit that you're gonna completely forget that you're supposed to kill (laughs) and then it had her name and he sent that to me and it's not like he was planning to kill her, but he was really mad at her. He was obsessed with her. And so the fact that his horoscope said, like, basically, you're going to get so caught up with yourself that you're going to forget you're supposed to kill your ex-girlfriend. And it listed her by name. I was like, of course, The Onion had this scarily accurate <laughs> horoscope for for him. Like, Because like, that's kind of, you know, you never know where you're going to find something like that. You never know where you're going to find a little jewel. And is that a jewel? Is that helpful? It might have been helpful. I know that he's not obsessed with her anymore. I know that he hasn't been obsessed with her in a long time. Maybe that thing helped him in some way. And I've had horoscopes like that. I've had daily horoscopes from these just generic pop hor- these pop astrology websites. Like, you know, if you were to tell somebody who's deep into astrology, oh, yeah, like I checked my horoscope on uh, astrology.com and uh, horoscope.com, they'd probably be like, don't do that, oh, my God. People who are into the niche world, be like, check dark astrology, ch- check Rob Brezhny, you know, like they'd probably tell you to check something else, like do a deeper analysis, you know, the... the They'd probably like raise the alarm bells like what you're doing is dangerous. Checking horoscope.com is dangerous. And that's something they would have in common with like the anti-astrology scientism type people. They would agree. That's fun. It's fun. It's like horseshoe theory or something where it's like the people who are super deep into astrology would tell you that checking horoscope.com is a problem just like the totally anti-spiritual, anti-astrological science people would tell you it's a problem. So it's sort of like horseshoe theory, where at both of those extremes, they kind of see things the same way. Um, But I I deliberately check those, kind of for the same reason that my friend checked the Onion's horoscopes, and it ended up being accurate. I check this pop culture ones, pop astrology, these pop astrology ones, just to be like, oh yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting. And when it is relevant to me, you know, I don't, I don't make a big deal out of it. I have before. There was one time where I was, I don't, I'm not even going to go into it, but just there, there was one time where there was kind of a series of days where it was just, it just seemed perfect. And I don't even remember all the details, but I, I just, I do remember that even with a critical mind. Um, but with that, you know, with checking these, uh, you know, yeah, I don't, I'm not invested. Like, I'm not, I would never say that astrology is one of my interests. 
And it's funny if that comes up because some people are so anti-astrological. You know, I mentioned people who are the anti-astrological science people. It's not enough to be non-astrological. You have to be actively anti-astrological. But there's people who see it as snake oil. And they see it not just as snake oil, but they see it as dangerous in some way. It gets back to that word dangerous. And I don't know that I've ever heard somebody say astrology is dangerous, but it's I've heard it mentioned in that part of the conversation in the same vein as like when people talk about pseudoscience being this huge problem. And it's not that I think that there's never a problem with these things. You know, and I think a good example would be like if somebody's kid has an illness and the kid is very sick and that person, the parent, is so desperate that they're willing to do anything to try to help their kid or find a cure and some spiritual person or somebody who's into, you know, I don't, I don't even know what to say, like into metaphysics, into anything, into astrology, into something, if, if they're like, hey, I have the cure for your kid, we're going to put some beads on him. And we're going to rub a crystal on his forehead. And we're going to do his uh, I Ching reading while I write my in-depth uh, astrological profile. You know, if somebody sells that to a desperate parent, I don't, I don't even know that it should be illegal. I think you get into a weird territory because like when someone, whenever someone voluntarily, say, pays somebody or goes to somebody... You know, you could say in their act of desperation, they're not thinking clearly, but it comes down to like, are they getting what they want? And in that situation, if somebody's kid is sick and they're desperate for some kind of solution, first of all, they may have exhausted all other possibilities. Maybe medicine can't do it. And in some final act of desperation, they're like, you know what? I'm going to go to this spiritual master. I'm going to go to this person who's selling some sort of miracle. You know, you don't know what came before that, first of all. Uh, and But there is something manipulative about that. There is something, you know, troubling about that. And I don't support that. I don't support people selling a miracle to a desperate person who's trying to save their kid. That's snake oil. But I don't think everything that doesn't match, you know, the science of today, and I mean today very literally, because you look at something like coronavi, and there were scientists saying things about coronavi nine months ago. Or rather, there, there are things about coronavi today that scientists are saying that if they were to say nine months ago, or if somebody else was to say them nine months ago, people would be like, you're spreading misinformation, oh my god. You're killing people with your misinformation, you, you freak. You know, it's like... There's things people are saying about coronavirus right now, scientists, that would have at least been controversial or would have had an air of, uh, I don't know, they, they just would have been challenged for sure nine months ago. So you can see where it's like the science of today. When I say that, I, I mean it very literally. And that's the beauty of science. That's why I'm not, no matter how critical I am of people who worship at that altar, I'll never criticize the scientific process or say that it's meaningless. I mean, I like medicine. I like, I think that we should have a healthy balance. I think we should look at the bigger picture of some of these things. Because to me, like with medicine in particular, especially like with my mom passing and stuff, you know, 
there's some people who in that situation would be like, oh, you know, medicine doesn't work. It, it couldn't save my mom. Oh, my God. Uh, and I saw it as, you know, they tried. You know, they, they did a bunch of interesting things to try to save my mom's life and they couldn't do it. And that doesn't change my perspective one way or the other. But the problem I have with this emphasis on medicine is that sometimes we become very disturbed by death. And, you know, I, you know people are disturbed by death for obvious reasons, and I would never try to convince them otherwise. You know, I'm still, I, you know, even though I, I have a healthy perspective on death, I it still disturbs me sometimes. Absolutely. How could it not? How could death not disturb you sometimes? I think if you tell people you don't care about it at all, you're setting yourself up for being scared of death more later. It's like that. It's like what I've talked about before about like violence, for example, where if you tell everybody you're a pacifist, you're going to be in for a shock if you have to use violence at some point or if you're or if violence is used against you or something like that. So it's better to actively, you know, try it. It's better to live a life where you avoid violence wherever possible and you're conscious of it. But you should never say that like, oh, I'm totally past violence, guys. I think it's the same thing with death, where it's like you should never say, oh, I'm totally comfortable with death, because you might be in a situation where your life is on the line, or somebody else's life is on the line, or you're dying, or somebody else is dying, or they have died, and all of a sudden you're not so happy about it. You know, it all depends. So you can try to live a life where you're comfortable with the idea of dying and death, but to try to act like you've mastered it. Which, you know, I almost did, you know, like, like a year ago, I almost felt like that, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I've been through the biggest death, you know, that ma- that could ever possibly matter to me. I've been through, you know, the biggest, I've climbed the biggest mountain of death that I ever imagined climbing, my mom passing away. And, and uh, because I handled it relatively well, or I've handled it relatively well up to a point, up to now, I would say. It doesn't mean that I've mastered it, because who knows? Who knows what could come down the line? Something small. You know, you could run over a, a possum, and it could just devastate you, and all of a sudden, oh, I guess you don't, I guess you're not the master of death anymore. Um, but yeah, the science of today is a thing that, you know, is one reason why you shouldn't worship at that altar. You know, you shouldn't, because, I mean, because the thing is, is, like, you will make an altar out of something one way or another. And when when you think that there's no altar, chances are there's one that you're just not seeing. But other people can see it who don't worship the same thing you do. And there is a worship of science. I mean, it's undeniable that certain people worship science. And I think it's okay that they challenge mysticism. I think it's okay that they challenge astrology. But I don't think they entirely understand what other people are getting out of it. And that's one of my central arguments in life at this point, is like, you don't know what somebody else is getting out of that thing. And it's especially true in the arts, when people censor the arts. Where, like, if somebody's into a controversial, whether it's the artist themselves that's controversial, or whether it's the content of their art, doesn't really make a difference. But when you assume that you know what people are getting out of that thing, or if you assume that everybody is getting the same thing out of that thing, that's an issue. And I don't assume that about science or medicine either. And, and what I was going to say, just re- the last thing I wanted to say about medicine was just that uh, 
you know, I think sometimes we get so preoccupied with the miracles, and I would absolutely call them miracles, even though they're the product of hard work and, uh, you know, intellectual pursuit and all that. Like, like they're still miracles of medicine. But I think sometimes people get so distracted and they get so deep into that way of thinking that they're actually, they do themselves a disservice when it comes to death because they're so focused on saving somebody. Like when my mom was dying, while I was hopeful in many ways that the medicine would save her or do something, that there would be some sort of medical miracle, I didn't let that distract me from the acceptance of her death. I didn't let that accept, I didn't let that um, distract from, you know, knowing that I had to accept this process and I had to come to terms with the whole weight of the situation in a way that was healthy and transformative. You know, I was very much focused on that. And I think one of the reasons I was able to focus on that side of it, in addition to wanting some kind of medical miracle, was because I am into all this stuff. I think having the interests that I've had throughout my entire adult life aided that balance. And And that's what it is. It's a balance. Uh, it's why I say, like, somebody who's desperate, who goes to somebody for some sort of miracle cure, while they might be getting sold snake oil, like, you don't necessarily know what they're getting out of that. And you don't know in what ways they have balanced the situation. They may have a lot of money, and they may have pursued medicine in addition to something mystical. Or they may simply prefer mysticism. And they're going to have to deal with the result. They're going to have to deal with what happens. So it's very much a balance in all these different ways. And it's not up to you necessarily to tell. You can't assume everybody's stupid. I think you can look at somebody who's desperate and want to help them. But it's a bad idea to assume that somebody isn't thinking or that you know what they're thinking. And that plays a role in all of this. Like, And just to go full circle, to check in my horoscope, because it's about me here uh, with the horoscope thing, somebody would assume they know what I'm getting out of that. And this is what, you know, for years now, I've been talking about pro-wrestling atheists who I've encountered my entire life, who when they found out you were into pro-wrestling, they would say, it's fake. Did you know that it's fake? Oh, did you know that what you're watching is fake? And it's like, oh, you're assuming you know what, you, what I get out of pro-wrestling. And it, has, it might have nothing to do. And then you get into, like, what's fake. And I know that this is a, a, a very common topic you know I've talked about the pro wrestling thing a lot but I think it is a really great example because yeah it's fake in the sense that it's not two men who are legitimately fighting like they are not trying to break each other's noses and break each other's legs and do what men do when they fight or even what men do when they box or wrestle in in these organized kind of violent sports but guys get hurt they hit each other with chairs. They, they actually are hurting each other. They are putting their bodies at risk. They are performing acts of incredible athleticism, even a body slam, you know. And, I mean, there was a point where a body slam was impressive. And you can see where just the standards of pro wrestling change, where it's like, oh, now you have to, like, fly off the top rope with, like, a chair and a scissor kick and, you know, go through a table. You know, you can see where the standards change, where something that was impressive earlier on you know, becomes less impressive as new tricks and stuff develop. But uh, that was the thing that always got me about 
being into pro wrestling growing up is that there were people who would try to tell you it's fake, like they were doing you some kind of service. But in that, they were always assuming what you like about it. They were always assuming what you're getting out of it. And that's just one of the biggest problems that we run into in our life is there's always an assumption that they know your motivations. They know why you're supporting something. They know why you check your horoscope. And for me, it's just, you know, it's a kind of a novelty that sometimes hits close to home. And sometimes somebody does deeper analysis that, in my experience, every time someone's done some sort of deep analysis, I've been, I've gone into it with a little, with a critical mindset, and it's managed to hit close to home, even when it comes to highly specific things. And, you know, of course, the daily horoscopes aren't very good at that. And something that kind of shows, something that kind of shows, you know, these daily horoscopes for what they are is there was this very interesting moment during coronavirus, which we're still in, but in the in the early phase of coronavirus, where society was adjusting, and you know, with with these horoscopes, I imagine they're all pre-written. You know, I imagine most of these pop horoscopes that I check, I imagine they're written at least days in advance, if not further. I don't think any of them are written, you know, spur of the moment. But there was a point where they were not relevant. Like during lockdown, like during global lockdown, there was a point where the horoscopes were still saying, like, go outside today and hang out with people. Make sure you go to a party tonight. Like, I remember checking my horoscope, like, during the height of lockdown, but it it was still relatively new, and it was like, make sure you go to a party tonight and uh, share a glass of wine. You know, I didn't say that, but it was something close to that, where it, like, involves something that completely violated all of the rules of coronavirus lockdown, and I was like, oh, they haven't updated their, (laughs) they haven't updated their system yet. And then sure enough, there was a day where I checked it and you could tell they had probably scrambled. You know, I've worked for tech companies before where you have to like scramble to change a bunch of things and the entire staff is on hand, like going through editing and, and, you know, doing that. And uh, so I imagine like the, (laughs) these pop astrology sites, like there was a point where they were like, oh God, all of our pre-written horoscopes are totally irrelevant now. And then sure enough, you started to see where like all the horoscopes were very much coronavi influenced. Is that an indictment of them? No, but it does show you that there's an element of, you know, they're subject to change and they are part of pop culture. You know, I see that as part of pop culture. But it's funny, too, because, you know, with the scientism sort of people, and that's a term that I heard somebody else use. I've heard people like Gordon White and just some different people use that. And I think it's relevant and I, and I always try to, I think I need to do a better job at generalizing about science and people who are into science. And I do like making jokes about it because every time I walk by a house that has one of those placards in the yard that's like, you know, we believe all lives matter. You know, they, they don't say all lives matter. They say we believe black lives matter. We believe this. It's all of like basically the left's talking points. But the one that like gets me is always that we, we believe science is real. This household believes science is real. And you know, the inverse of that is, I saw a bumper sticker once that said, we say Merry Christmas. And I was like, that's so un-Christmas-like. Like, I, I understand, like, not wanting to say Happy Holidays. And my joke about that is Happy Holiday. Like, during December, like, pretending to play the game and saying Happy Holiday. Because then it's like, 
I'm still talking about one holiday. It's like, I don't know. (laughs) That's my own little like rebelliousness is being like, happy holiday. You know what holiday I'm talking about. But the bumper sticker that said, we say Merry Christmas. And what that meant, and it's funny, like that's all the bumper sticker said. And it was some mom driving it. But you know, like that was such an angry statement. It's like our family says Merry Christmas. We don't say Happy Holidays. And it's like, even if you agree with that sentiment, putting it on a bumper sticker that says we say Merry Christmas is, you know, (laughs) it made me laugh, but it was also, it's just, it's, there's an audacity to that that I don't like. And that's how I feel when I see the, we believe science is real. There's a tone to that 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 just rubs me the wrong way. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, and it's always changing. I mean, that's the thing is that like people talk about science and I think some of these people, if you actually had a conversation with them, which is missing from so many of these things are conversations. But if you were to have a conversation with these people, these people, they would be like, yeah, I understand that science is a process that is always changing. And what is taken for granted yesterday might be different today and it might change again tomorrow. And that's the beauty of the scientific process. And that's actually very similar to the spiritual process, which is that I'm not who I was yesterday, and I might be someone different today, and I might be someone different tomorrow. You know, it's like that sort of principle is pretty universal, and nobody really can claim ownership of it, even though it manifests in our life in our lives in different ways and in the different processes that we work with. Um, but we believe science is real. You know, I definitely rebel against that and I make cheap shots, but I'm trying not to generalize. Like when I talk about people who, I mean, for instance, like I know in my high school, I never took physics, like science and math were never my things. I always struggled with those. Maybe this is where it all comes from. Somebody's psych 101. And I mean, I think psych 101 is just as bullshit as pop horoscopes. You know, it's like when somebody is still riffing on some sort of Freudian fume, the feuds, the, the fumes of Freud, you know, I think that's just as bogus as somebody who, like, believes wholeheartedly in their daily horoscope. I think that it all comes from wanting to f- your mother. I think it all, oh, I think that this all comes from you. This all comes from your problems with your father. Oh, this all comes from that time that you didn't get the ice cream cone. You know, it's like people throw that kind of shit out. I'll I'll come across things, even people I like, you know, even people I care about will say things like that sometimes. And I'm like, you're still riffing on one guy's, one amazing thinker, but still one guy's idea about some of people's motivations or, or when people think that every, like the Freudian idea, everything's about sex. And I mean, obviously I fall more on the young side of things as far as that horrible war, the great war between former friends, Freud and Jungo. Obviously I fall on the Jungian side of things, but Freud's got a million great ideas. I mean, Freud's the foundation of so much, but I think people become religious about psychology. They become religious about science and those things change. And I think some of the some things, some of the statements that come from those ideas become almost quaint. And you have to remember that. And I don't even remember what the word quaint means. It sounded good. But that's something you need to remember. 
the same process plays out. And uh, so it's like when I when I come down on science, I just I, I need to make it very clear what I'm referring to. That I'm not coming down on science. I'm not coming down on the scientific process. I'm coming down on sort of the religious fervor that people have when they approach it. And the what I would consider kind of this, you know, it's we say Merry Christmas. We say Merry Christmas. We believe in, we believe science is real. What's real anyway? What is real? You know, it's just, that's just, you know, sort of my mindset about it is, uh, you know, you, I don't know. There's just a, kind of an arrogance. It's a term that I've, I, maybe somebody else has used it, but it came to my mind fairly recently when I was talking about people who say the right side of history, and that's contemporary narcissism. And I think that's very accurate when it comes to science. There can be this contemporary narcissism that we know. Oh, I read the Scientific Journal's article today, and they're totally right, and I believe them, and that makes me totally right. And that means I can wield that as a weapon against the people who don't agree. And then you're wrong tomorrow, but for that day that you think you're right, there's a degree of contemporary narcissism, and it goes for beliefs, because these are all beliefs, you know, in addition to being... In addition to the scientific process, you know, establishing, you know, the scientific process, you know, establishes like elements of our reality. You know, it it uh, it explains certain. The scientific process explains certain processes. Basically, is how I see it. But there's still a high degree of belief within that, and that process can't be separated from your beliefs. Uh, but what I, what I was going to say is in high school, uh, there was a physics teacher who I didn't have because I never made it to physics. That was way beyond me. Even basic physics was way beyond me. Uh, I barely got through marine biology. <coughs> uh, and that's, that's where all my scientific, uh, that's where all my bad attitudes about science come from, is that I wasn't a good science. Psych 101. Oh, because you weren't very, because you struggled to get a B minus in marine biology, that's why you have all this resentment towards science. Hi, I got your number. You know, people will try to pull that, you know, and that's again that I'm imagining this ghoul who doesn't exist, that phantom who doesn't exist, who's just waiting to point out like some psych 101 analysis of me or point out my hypocrisies. <laughs> I'm just that phantom who's actually me saying, oh, this all comes from your, uh, the fact that you struggled through marine biology your sophomore year of high school. But the physics teacher, I, I learned, he was a Christian, a very devout Christian, and he was actually the head of the Bible study group. And I always thought that was interesting. And you could tell the students didn't really know what to think. Like, there were certainly a good amount of Christian kids in my school, and, and you know, it, but it definitely, I didn't go to a religious school, and it wasn't, it, it was a very secular environment, a very secular community, and I would say the actual Christian kids were a minority, even though a lot of families, I think, probably would have identified as Christian. The actual kids who were part of youth group and went to church every week, I believe, were a, a minority in the community. Um, but uh, they would, some of these kids would go to this Bible study group, this Christian group, within the school that was headed by the physics 
professor or teacher. Excuse me, he wasn't a professor. <laughs> uh, um, high school teachers are not professors. They're teachers. They're educators. That's a new one you hear a lot. Educators. He is an educator. When I hear that, and I'm, not, I'm taking nothing. Because to me, a teacher is awesome. Like To me, the, the word teacher doesn't devalue a teacher. But I guess people have gotten that in their minds, and now you hear people say, he is an educator, she is an educator. And when I hear that, I, it, it's the same feeling I get when I say, we say Merry Christmas. We, we believe science is real. We say educator in this household. I get the same feeling when I hear that. Maybe someday, maybe in a few days, I'll have adopted it. In the same way I was reluctant to use the word selfie, and now I say it because it's the word. Maybe when educator becomes the standard word, I will adopt it because that's not the hill that I'm going to die on. We say teacher. We say educator. The war between teachers and educators. The war between people who say teacher and people who say educator. What side are you on? You know, before you, before you give your opinion on free speech, I need to know whether you say teacher or educator. Where do you qualify your statement? I, I need to know where you stand. I mean, things are that absurd. Things are that absurd in my experience lately. Um, but uh, anyway, it was, just, it was always interesting to me, though, that this teacher was a physics teacher very obviously into the scientific process, but yet a devout Christian. And that's not uncommon. I mean, most scientific development up until relatively recently was by religious people, some of them devout, some of them heavily involved, some of them even priests and, um, you know, people heavily involved with the Catholic Church. I mean, you think about a shaman and even going into that, where uh, mysticism and science used to be much more correlated, and, and I don't think there was as much distinction between them. Um, so I'm not surprised. I, I don't think there's anything contradictory or hypocritical about a science teacher who is also the head of the Bible study group. Uh, some people would talk about it, though. It was because kids are smart, you know, kids aren't idiots. And people would talk about that. They'd be like, did you know that the physics teacher is the head of the Bible group? Like even then, even in the early 2000s, people thought there was an element of uh, contradiction to that, maybe, or at least a conversation, which is, you know, I did you know, I never heard anybody who was like, can you believe it? Can you believe that this, the guy who teaches our kids physics is pushing the the Bible on people too. You know, I never heard anybody say anything like that, but it's interesting that the kids were aware of that. The kids were aware that there was something that had to be reconciled there. And because I didn't know him, I'm sure I must have come up in that Bible study group. That was probably an interesting Bible study group because he must have talked about science. You know, they they would meet in his room. They would meet in his lab which is funny to say like all these Christian kids meeting in a laboratory. They're meeting in his laboratory. Oh my God! This this physics teacher—he's like a cult leader. He he has all the kids hanging out in his laboratory, like talking about the Bible. Seems like that's a good place to talk about the Bible. It seems like a good atmosphere. You know why not? Why not do that? Um, but you know you can reconcile these things, and you know, and to get 
full circle back to what prompted all this talk today is I was looking at my horoscope this morning and while these pop horoscopes do speak in generalities, they're not like that onion horoscope that told my friend, you know, you're going to be so distracted by your own nonsense that you're going to forget you're supposed to kill ex-girlfriend's name. You know, while, while you can't always expect them to be that specific, and they're, they often do speak in platitudes and generalities, which is kind of why I like them. They kind of set a tone, and sometimes they do match just how you feel. They match your own general feeling. You know, sometimes that's the case, and sometimes they do hit upon something specific. Um, but uh, my horoscope on astrology.com for today said there is a big disconnect between what people are saying and what they're doing now. There's a bit of hypocrisy going on, but it might not be in your best interest to make a big deal about it. After all, when you point a finger at someone else, there are four more fingers pointing back at you. It's time to be loose about what you expect from people. No one is perfect, and everyone deserves a second chance in life from time to time. You'll need one someday yourself. You know, whether you think horoscopes... It doesn't, you know, if, if you were to strip away the, the entire premise of that being a horoscope, that's just a good thought right now. Because something I talk a lot about on this show is, you know, something recently, it's a, a kind of a new way of phrasing it, but it's something I've been always talking about is, you know, there are unnecessary contradictions and there are what might be considered even necessary contradictions or at least tolerable contradictions in your life. There are tolerable hypocrisies that you can live with without being a mess. And in some cases, they're not actually contradictory. They're not actually hypocritical. They're actually going to help you level up. Like you've been convinced because of contemporary narcissism, that two things are at odds with each other. Kind of like that science teacher who headed the Bible study group at my high school. You know, what I'd be very interested in how he reconciled those, and he probably realized these things aren't necessarily at odds. He probably realized, like, oh, me teaching people physics isn't at odds with my Christian beliefs. But you would think so because of contemporary narcissism and people wouldn't have thought that hundreds of years ago like i don't like i think saint thomas aquinas like i didn't he wasn't he very into uh, scientific experiments like wasn't there an element of that even though he floated even though people say he like could float <laughs> you know even though there were some very mystical things i might be i might be confusing him with somebody else but uh you know there's people like that where you have these saints who were completely devoted to god and Catholicism, who managed to be these scientific innovators. And so you can see where at that point in time, like hundreds of years ago, contemporary narcissism might have told you, oh, guess what? You have to be a Christian in, a, in order to be a scientist. And then today, it's you can't be a Christian and a scientist. And so contemporary narcissism can make you think that something is a contradiction when it isn't. And when you realize that, when you realize that your mind has been clouded by contemporary narcissism, you actually level up, just like in a role-playing game. You level up in that moment. And sometimes you, you know, if you ever played role-playing games growing up, like like uh, Japanese role-playing games, sometimes you would have this experience, like, where you, you know, sometimes you would grind, 
as they say, you would grind and you would level your characters up just throughout the game so that the bosses would be easier. And when you would beat a boss, you might level up, you know, one level. But if you played the game and you didn't grind, bosses would be a lot harder. And when you beat the boss, you might level up like 10 levels. That would happen in certain games where if you didn't level your character up gradually throughout the game, you'd beat a really difficult boss by the skin of your teeth. And then you would suddenly be like, oh, holy shit, my character just leveled up five levels in a row in one fight. And life can do that to you, too. Our RPGs taught me so much about life, honestly. You know, I've gone into it a lot on this show, but I, I learned so much from Japanese RPGs as a kid that I didn't even realize I was learning at the time. You know, I didn't even realize when I was eight years old playing Final Fantasy II, a.k.a. IV, uh, that, you know, I, I would learn so many fundamental aspects of life from that. But as above, so below. That's an example of as above, so below. That, that cliche statement that's often made in mystical, spiritual, occult circles, as above, so below. But you can experience that in any way. Like, of course, like this game, this fantasy game, is using some of the components of our real life, even though the designers might not have realized it. Like when Squaresoft was designing the early Final Fantasy games, they might not have been thinking, oh, even though leveling up is this abstraction where it's like you gain enough experience points to get to the next level, even though that's not something that actually happens in our waking life, we're going to simulate that in a way. And you experience that with working out. You experience that in any number of ways. It's what I call a breakthrough. Like you can practice guitar over and over again and grind and then you have a moment where you play something or do something or you make a certain sound and you go, oh, I just leveled up. Oh, I just leveled up. And so, you know, as above, so below, of course, a similar process would play out even in this video game, this primitive video game, if you want to go back to like the very early games uh, and... You know, so as above, so below. It plays out there, too. And so that happens in life sometimes. And I know that it happens for me when I'm caught up in my own contemporary narcissism and I, and I suddenly reconcile that. And I realize that, oh, this thing that felt like it was hypocritical, this thing that felt like it was a contradiction actually helped me level up. I mean, it could be something like, you know, I, I, I was thinking about marijuana, and how part of that is, you'd think it's hypocritical to say marijuana can be good for you. And then you could say marijuana can be bad for you. Oh, that's a, you're a hypocrite. Didn't you just say marijuana is good for you? Didn't you just, marijuana is perfect. We all know if you smoke marijuana, you have to say marijuana is perfect. If you smoke marijuana, you have to wear a weed leaf on your shirt. And you have to tell everybody it's a miracle drug. You have to be religious about marijuana if you smoke marijuana. How can you then turn around and say that marijuana is bad? Well, it's good for you in different ways than it's bad. In the same way that you're a good person, but there's also maybe bad things about you. And it doesn't mean you're fundamentally one or the other. And it might mean sometimes you get consumed by one. 
It might mean that like sometimes the good is is more than the bad, but I think so many of these things basically translate to, oh, there's a whole lot going on here. And it's difficult to see the bigger picture. Like it's difficult for me to look at marijuana and say it's ultimately good, even though I think that it is mostly harmless at least in comparison to much harder drugs and just different things. You know, I think it's all, it's all in context. And the problem with prohibition, as I've mentioned before, is that I don't like to criticize something when it's prohibited. Because I feel that that contributes to the prohibition. So even though when marijuana was illegal and I smoked a ton of it, I knew that it had downsides because I, I was experiencing those downsides. Like when I used to smoke a ton of weed, whether I admitted it to myself or not, I could feel the negative aspects of smoking weed. But I was hesitant to say that openly because I felt that that contributed to the prohibition. But now that it's legal in Washington, I have no problem saying that weed has many downsides. And that's not hypocritical. That's not a contradiction. And in recognizing that, you kind of level up. You level up, like, at least in terms of personal honesty. You're being a little more honest. You're understanding something a little better. And, uh, you know, weed is a funny example to use because, because it applies, you know, to much more important things. But it's like your contemporary narcissism. I mean, a great example of contemporary narcissism is a prohibition in thinking this is bad, so we can't let people have it. And then a few years later, it's legal. And I mean, that was the funny thing, going back to Coronivai, where one of the only stores, in addition to like grocery stores, during the initial lockdown, one of the only stores open in this area were the weed stores. And I thought that was so funny, where just 10 years ago or less, I, don't, I guess it was like 2012 maybe, I'm trying to remember the year that weed got legalized, but it's like if you went back a decade for sure and you told somebody that, oh, hey, there's going to be a, a coronavirus pande- pandemonium and everything's going to be closed except legal weed stores. If you were to tell that to somebody in 2010 when weed stores weren't around and marijuana wasn't legal and you would be arrested for selling it and, and arrested for smoking it, you know, someone would say, what? And that shows you that the world changes. And it's funny, I was listening to the Smiths, who I didn't get into until really late. Like, I had, I had some friends in high school who were into indie rock and, and stuff like that, but none of them at the time that I know of were listening to the Smiths. There was nobody who could have introduced me to the Smiths, and my own interests wouldn't have pointed me there. And I hadn't heard them, and, and so... I would have assumed that I wouldn't like them, so I never would have checked them out. It, just, it wasn't one of those things, you know. Your, my road didn't lead there. My road didn't lead to the Smiths growing up. And it took me much later. Actually, what it took was walking into a friend's house. No, what it was is I was at a bar with a friend, and he put something on the jukebox. The bar had a jukebox, and he put something on, and it was the Smiths Cemetery Gates not to be confused with Pantera Cemetery Gates, which is also a good song. Uh, there was actually a night, I remember many years ago, where I was drinking heavily, and I was alternating between the Smith Cemetery Gates and Pantera Cemetery Gates. It was like, like a mashup, and they, they're spelled differently. They spell cemetery differently. So don't get them confused. 
Uh, but uh, with the Smiths, a friend of mine put them on the jukebox, and I didn't know what it was, and this song came on. It was Cemetery Gates, and I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. What is this? What'd you put on? And he said, the Smiths, and I was like, whoa. And I, you know, I, I didn't go home and buy a, a Smiths album. On, you know, I didn't order a Smiths album or anything, but I, I was just like, wow, I'm impressed. I didn't know that this is what the Smiths were. And if I had heard this in passing, I, I guess I didn't really hear it because this is cool. And then a very short time later, I think a matter of days, my best friend had moved to town and we used to have this ritual on Fridays where I would go over to his house and drink and we'd just, you know, rap back and forth. And literally we would rap, we would freestyle. No, but we would just go there and we would just get into conversations. Not unlike this, not unlike this show, but not one-sided like this is. Um, But I, I walked into his house just a few days after hearing that Smith song and sure enough, he was listening to that exact song. I walked into his house and, and I was like, what? You know, and he was, one, he was one of those indie rock friends. Like, he was one of those friends in high school who was into indie rock. So it's funny in that, in that way that, you know, much later he would be listening to the Smiths. And that kind of confirmed that, that, went, that took like that initial, like hearing the Smiths a couple days earlier, a few days earlier, however long it was. I need, I need to be exact because this is science. Um, like that just like planted the seed where I was like, Oh, maybe the Smiths are good. This is cool. This is cool to hear in this. That's what it was hearing the Smiths in the bar that night. It was just simply, this is cool to hear right now. Cause I didn't know the Smiths were cool. And then going over to my friend's house and him listening to it, it was a synchronicity for sure. But, uh, it, it, it confirmed that, Oh, I'm actually going to start listening to the Smiths. It was like, I've now heard this same song twice in the span of a couple days. I'm going to be a listener now. But I don't listen often. It's very rare that I listen to the Smiths. And, you know, it's only been maybe five years since I've become a fan. And a few years ago, I didn't own any Smiths. I still didn't buy any Smiths. It would be something that I'd listen to online. But I was at the used bookstore, which had a nice used CD section. And I bought... The Queen is dead for, you know, a dollar or two. And so it's nice to have that. And I hadn't listened to it for a very long time. And a couple of days ago, I was running errands and I, I decided, oh, I, I was going through my CDs and I was just like, oh, you know what? I'm going to listen to this. I'm going to listen to the Smiths today. And right away, as I was pulling out of the driveway, I was like, yeah, you know, this is what I need to be listening to right now. Because I didn't used to care about lyrics, you know, not to say there weren't lyrics that I liked, but when I was growing up, I kind of rejected lyrics. It was a really unimportant part of music to me. And as I've gotten older, I'm just like, can you believe that this guy came up with this? Can you believe that he wrote this? Oh, my God, this lyric is amazing. And, of course, Morrissey's in a whole other league. You know, Morrissey is in a whole other league when it comes to just lyrical execution. He's the lyrical executioner. Speaking of freestyling, yo, my guy Morrissey, he's a lyrical executioner. I don't know how to rhyme that. But, uh, yo, man, you heard heard this fool Morrissey, he's a lyrical executioner. I'm trying trying so hard to think of a rhyme, but it just, I don't need this show to get any dumber. Um, but, you know, listening to it in my car a couple days ago, one of the first lyrics on the title track that opens the album is, has the world changed or have I changed? 
And, you know, that, that just shows you like where I'm at. Cause it's like that blew my mind, you know, and, I, and I've heard that lyric before, but I'm just like, can you believe he came up with this lyrical question? Oh my God, that's amazing. Have, has the world changed or have I changed? Because that really summed up how I felt lately. And the answer is both. You know, I mean, just looking at something like legalized weed and the fact that during a global coronavi pandemonium, that weed would be one of the only stores open, that there would even be weed stores. That, to me, is a sign that, yeah, the world's changed, and it's changed in a lot of other ways. That's not the only way the world's changed. And I have a tendency to be stubborn about myself. I'm stubborn about my own stubbornness, where I have a tendency to be like, I don't blow in the wind, which I think is true. You know, I I don't think that I blow in the wind. I don't think like the winds of society and culture blow me. Hey, culture and society can blow me. No, but I don't think I blow in those winds. But that doesn't mean I don't change, and it doesn't mean they don't impact me. And I've absolutely changed. And to go on like a very... Speaking of contemporary narcissism, uh, to go into just full-on narcissism, I've been going through the archives of all kinds of things related to just creative projects I've, I've had. I've been going through my record collection, which I never do. I very rarely listen to records or anything, and I, I don't have an extensive collection. It's funny. It's funny, though, like that's all relative, because when I was hanging out with a group of friends years ago that I, I had in town here, they knew I owned a bunch of records, and they would call me a record collector, but I'm not, you know, like I, I own records that I like. I've always been very deliberate and I have a bunch of shitty records I accumulated as a teenager and when I was young that I, I'm actually embarrassed about, but I still have them, just never got rid of them. But anyway, it's like, you know, I, I do have like, you know, hundreds, hundreds of records and, you know, probably not a thousand, but I have hundreds of records for sure. Uh, but I've always been very deliberate, you know, and, and with the 45s, you know, I have a, a collection of doo-wop and country and, you know, teen 45s from the 50s and 60s. And those are all highly specific. Like, I'm not somebody who hoards or accumulates just those for the sake of it. I've always bought ones that I already know I'm going to like, or they tend to be an artist, or they just sound good. Like, I'm very deliberate about those jewels. But I've been going through that stuff. But I've also been going through, like, some of my own archives, and well, what I was going to say about like record collecting, I don't know why that, I don't even know why I'm talking about that, but it's relative. Cause like, if you meet people who own, like I met a girlfriend many years ago and she had one record, it was a Lou Reed record and she gave it to me because she was like, Oh, you have a bunch of records. I bought this Lou, Re- Lou, Lou record, this Lou Reed cord at the record store or at the uh, thrift store. And to her, it was just a pure novelty. Like she probably went to the thrift store for the first time with like a friend and was like, oh, people buy vinyl. And I'm not saying this in some sort of condescending way, but she was probably just like, oh, people buy vinyl. It'd be cool to own this Lou Reed record or whatever. And then she gave it to me because she saw that her one record was kind of pathetic. It's kind of pathetic. To, it's kind of actually, I think it's kind of cool just to have one record. Uh, but, uh, the site is kind of pathetic just to have like one record. Like, how do you even store that? What do you even do with it? So she gave it to me, to her, I'm a record collector to those friends that I had who used to call me a record collector. I'm a record collector because I have a lot more. I, they don't have any records. They don't even care about records. And I have a bunch, 
But then I go to my friends' houses, my closest friends and people who I've been involved with, you know, through creative stuff. And you go to their houses and they have a record room. They have thousands of records. They have so many records. And uh, to me, it's like, whoa, those are record collectors. Those are, are what I would consider record collectors. I'm not that. I just kind of have, a, I have a, I've accumulated records because of my interests. But when I go to someone's house and they have like different editions and, you know, this comprehensive collection, like they want to own everything they like on vinyl. And even then more. Like they don't even just buy stuff they like. They want to have like everything that's definitive of a certain genre. And they're just curious. You know, they just, they have a passion for collecting and that's really cool. And I know I've, I've made some cheap shots about like materialism and record collectors. And, you know, I, I don't have any. I think it's really cool to be into that. I, I make cheap shots. Just all, uh, it's, it's just flippant. You know, I'm not a, in the same way that I say things about like science and all that. It's, I'm not out to like crush anybody's ball sack in my below my foot. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's one way to put it. But anyway, just uh, I've been going through the archives, and that includes like my collection of things, because it is a collection. At the end of the day, while I'm not a record collector, capital R, capital C, I have a, a collection of records. But I've also been, I don't, you know, again, I don't know why I'm talking about that, but I've been going through old things of mine, and I found some interviews I did when I was younger, and I, I think both of these interviews came out in 2010 in zines, you know, their print. And they're two of the only interviews that I, I think I ever did. And, uh, you know, industrial noise, experimental music. They're, they, they're zines that are related to those genres that I've been involved in. I was more heavily involved in years ago, but still is a big part of my life. It's still a foundation. And I was reading those interviews, and has the world changed or have I changed? And reading these interviews... Like, there were things I said that I still absolutely agree with, but it's interesting how my perspective on those things has changed, and I could easily get really narcissistic and, like, analyze it. I could I could read my answers to these interview questions. But first of all, like, I was so... Like, my, my responses were so miserable, and not in a depressed way, but in, like, a just a disgusted with life, mis- misanthropy. And reading it, I didn't get the feeling like I was posturing like I didn't get the feeling that I was you know because I'll, I'll come across like old metal zines and you'll read an interview with an early interview with a band where they're like posturing that they're hateful and posturing they're angry and posturing that they're misanthropic and reading like my own answers to these questions I was like this is somebody who is legitimately disgusted by people and very close-minded and limited and even though like some of my analysis of things especially there were there there was a question funny funny enough about meditation the guy Levos I believe that's how you pronounce his name he's a Lithuanian guy who did a zine very cool guy haven't talked to him in years but you know really nice to me and good guy but he did these interview questions and he was asking me about like uh he asked me one about meditation and I got into spirituality and it's funny because I was like, I gave this like really opinionated, harsh stance on meditation where I was like, I don't know why anybody meditates. 
meditation is basically what leads to serial killers because these guys meditate on their own thoughts and it goes unfiltered and unchecked. And when somebody isolates themselves and just lives in this constant state of meditation, they end up basically being a monster. And I actually still agree with that. I think, and I think you, when you look at like the QAnon shaman, like when I, when I watched the interview with him from a few months ago where he was being interviewed by this new age lady, I kind of got the feeling where I was like, while this guy does similar things to me in, in certain ways, I did kind of, and, and like, I, I don't even, I went into that in a non-judgmental way and I don't want to get all political here again, but uh, with the QAnon shaman, shaman, the QAnon shaman, uh, I got the feeling like, oh, because he talked about like his dad getting him stoned for the first time at age 11 and he said he had a rough childhood and I kind of got the impression that this guy's state of isolation and this guy's spiritual state, which I don't judge in the same way I wouldn't want to ju- want someone to judge my own process or make assumptions about me. I went into this thinking, I, I watched the interview with the QAnon shaman thinking, Will I potentially get something from this? If nothing else, just simply understanding who this guy is and where he comes from is valuable, considering he's become this, he's instantly become this noteworthy figure that people hate. Because there's a lot of people that, because I mean, the only reason I know about this interview that he did some, some time back, the only reason I even know about that is because like it was linked in an article talking about what a piece of shit he is. And so I feel like anybody who's going to watch this interview he did is going to go into it thinking, oh, let's hear what the piece of shit says. Let's hear what the QAnon piece of shit shaman says. You know, I feel like anybody who's going to watch that is going to go in with that mindset. And while I don't have any sympathy necessarily, at least no sympathy that I wouldn't extend, like I have the same amount of sympathy or empathy that I would extend to any human being. From the guy on the street corner asking for money to Trumpsfeld to Obama Biden. You know, I have the same amount of empathy for all of them. At least I try. And so I went into that. But I didn't go in with like a condescending like, oh, I'm going to have empathy to find out like how this guy got on the wrong path. I just went into it thinking like, will will some idea travel across the chasm? Like, will I learn something maybe spiritually from this guy? And that doesn't mean I have to like him. But I go into everything with that, you know, some of my, some of the people who have inspired me the most, I don't agree with on most things. So I went into it with that mindset, but I did get the feeling, you know, just my own opinion was that he's a good example of what I was talking about in this interview 10 years ago about how if you spend too much time isolated in a state of meditation, it can really push you along a bad path. And, you know, I say that totally self-aware that somebody could say that about me. Although, yeah, you know, hopefully in saying this, I'm, I'm showing a level of self-awareness or something. But, uh, you know, I, I was looking back and like, speaking of contemporary narcissism, it's not just something that the collective around you is experiencing. Uh, contemporary narcissism is not limited to you know, society or culture, because we as individuals make up that culture, and you have contemporary narcissism about yourself in your individual life. And reading old interviews I did, it was like reading an old diary. And in the same way, I never kept a diary. I think I tried once. I think I made like one entry, and it was about a girl. Like, I, I, I hope Jenny's going to pay attention to me on Friday when I see her. You know, I think it was something like that. Uh, but, uh, 
you know, I never kept a real diary, although now I do. Turns out I do now. I do an audio diary that anybody can hear. Um, but uh, it just takes some things. You, you get into the Smiths later in life, and you start keeping an audio diary late in life. That's just the way things are now. Has the world changed, or have I changed? Um, but uh, you know, reading this these old interviews, it was, it's kind of like reading a diary, but it was one that was published. Because, you know, while it was specific to certain creative involvement, there are general questions. And, like, what got me about just all of my answers in general in both of these zines was that everything I said was so dismissive. Like, not of the interviewer. Like, one of the interviewers is somebody that I, I mean, I was talking to a couple of days ago. He's somebody that I consider a friend. Uh, and uh, Levos, too. Like, like, one of them was my friend Chris, Chris Groves a Tasmanian guy, a Tasmanian lawyer. Um, but uh, the other guy was Levos, who I, I would consider a friend too, but, you know, he's not somebody that I've, I've stayed in touch with. But it, so, so my dismissive attitude and, you know, it, it, there was no condescension toward the interviewer. But I just, I was like, man, I'm so disgusted by everything. I'm so high on myself. I'm filled with my own contemporary narcissism. I think that I'm so right. And while I can look back at some of the things I said, and I'm like, good point. Good point, younger me. There's also, I'm like, your perspective is so different. And like, for example, there was a, a question that asked, Levos asked me, you know, do you see any hope for humanity? And he, he elaborated a little bit, but he basically asked me, like, do I see any hope for humanity? And I was like, you know, I do, but or I don't know what I said. I was like, you know, I, I, I basically, it, it was a very like nasty response about having hope. And I think I said something like, no, here's what I said. I said, like, if I could offer hope for humanity, I would do it. But I would also probably do something that would take all of that hope away again. Like if I had the power to offer humanity hope, I would probably also like take away that hope. <laughs> And, uh, which is a funny response. I mean, there, there was something like intended to be funny about that, but I also, I, I brought up this example and who knows where I read this at the time, but I, I mentioned, I was like, oh, I heard that during the economic depression we were going through at that time, people are wearing darker clothes and they think it's a reflection of the economic depression. So as a, a, a in response, the fashion industry is trying to make more colorful clothes to kind of get people out of their personal and economic depression. And I mentioned that in the interview, which obviously I had read that somewhere. I didn't make that up. The, the fashion industry was trying to introduce more colorful clothes into their into their lines in order to like boost people's morale and boost the economy even like I had read that somewhere. And in the interview, I'm like, that is the most pitiable thing that is so that shows how pathetic things are that they think that the world can be changed for the better by just making more colorful clothing. And like reading that now, I'm like, <laughs> reading that now I have like the complete opposite attitude where I'm like, what? I'm like, what? Like, that's actually sweet. That's actually cute. Whether it's effective or not, that's cute. It's cute that people would think to do that. It's cute to me that people would be like, you know what, we're going to try to boost things by making colorful clothing. And now I'm of the mindset where it's like, have you ever heard of positive thinking? Have you ever heard of meditation? Well, in this interview, I'm like, positive thinking, colorful clothes, baby steps to feeling better, 
stupid, pitiable. Meditation is bad for you. And then now, you know, flash forward 10 years and I'm like, have you ever heard of meditation and how it can change your life for the better? Have you ever thought about how telling a cashier you're feeling great, even when you're not, actually makes you feel better? You know, now I'm very much of that mindset. So has the world changed or have I changed? I, I feel I've changed. And I would rather be on this side of the fence than the other side of the fence. Like, I would rather be looking at back at myself 10 years ago, 11 years ago, to be specific, to be scientific. Specific, scientific. It's another one of my rap lyrics. Scientific, specific, uh, specific, scientific. <laughs> um, sounds like something. I feel like that's, this sounds like a parody. of. It's like my Weird Al version of a song I can't remember. Um, but, uh, you know, while looking back, I would rather look back and be like, wow, you were so closed-minded and clouded. And while some of the things you said, and I'm talking to myself here, my younger self, like while some of the things you said were on point and interesting, you had such a bad outlook. And I'm, I'm glad to be looking back at that and feeling like, oh, wow, I have a, a much more open heart and open mind now. And while some of my analysis and maybe some of my criticisms are the same, some of, some of who I am can't be changed, looking back on that, I was just like, wow, okay. Okay, you know, it's things have changed for the better, I think, in my case. I think I'm in a better, a much better place. Um, and that's something that you see with art, where often people produce more potent things when they're in a worse place. And when their life gets better, what they do isn't as good, especially if you're into dark music, because you don't want it to be posturing. You don't want it to be bad. And it's hard to do that. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to change yourself. It's hard to transform yourself and stay good or relevant in the same way that you were relevant. And I'm not even talking about me here. I'm just talking about like my own taste in music and art, because an example, like while we're talking about industrial and noise and all of that, like an, an example is MB. MB. You ever heard of MB? And he was a very influential early artist in that field who created these very dark, textural, minimal, uh, I guess, industrial noise sort of releases. And he disappeared. You know, he was very pivotal in the early underground days of the genre. And then he disappeared and then he reemerged. And his stuff was kind of new agey. His stuff was much more light. He was definitely not doing... His stuff didn't have the same like dark autism that it had earlier on. And he talked about that. And he said how you know, he had gone through a transformation. And, I, and it might have been a spiritual transformation. I mean, I think any kind of transformation is spiritual, whether you're comfortable using that word or not. Um, but he had gone through some kind of transformation and he was producing music that was in line with that. He was producing music that was based on who he was now. And he was, you know, talking about how miserable and dark his life was when he produced this stuff that people cared about. Like people today look back on MB, MB, they look back on all MB as you know, the found, one of the founders of, of really the genre. And people were very critical of his newer stuff. Like while people were interested, they didn't like it as much. And that's something that happens with a lot of artists and even artists who don't go through transformations in music in particular. 
visual art's different. Like visual art can change, but it's less polarizing. Like people don't have the same attitudes toward visual art, toward fine art that they do music. Like, and, and if fine art changes, like if, if there's an example where a fine artist changes his style, people don't go, I hate him. What a, what a MFer. What an MFer. MB, you mean MFer? You know, people don't uh, have as severe of a reaction about other genres. And you look at actors too. Like, if an actor goes through a transformation, it doesn't necessarily get reflected in their work. Like, if an actor was like in a dark place when they performed certain roles earlier in their career and they go through some sort of spiritual transformation, they don't necessarily start playing different roles. It doesn't necessarily change their acting ability. But there's something about music, and I think it, it plays into like the, how soulful music really is, that, first of all, even without a transformation, an artist can just lose it. You, know, you think about how many bands or artists, like their first couple albums, their demo and their first album, I think in, in metal in particular, you find that like the demo and first album can be incredible. And then by the second or third album, it doesn't have the same magic. Even if you like it, you, you notice a distinct change that isn't quite, doesn't quite have the potency that it had. And some of that, I think, is the pressure to keep doing something. Because you think about, and this is getting off here, but I think it's worth talking about, uh, is that what's interesting about music and being in a band is like there's often this idea that you start doing this and you're going to do it indefinitely. Like very few people, like people will have projects like, oh, this is a side project. And that usually means like I'm not necessarily going to do this forever. I might just do it once. I might just record one thing and that's the side project. But with bands in particular and people who are, you know, individual artists for that matter in music, there's this tendency for them to be like, I started doing this and I'm going to do it forever. And part of that's the investment. And especially if they get any kind of, if their identity becomes part of that, there's kind of this pressure to keep doing it. And sometimes people do it well. Sometimes people do it forever and it's good. Sometimes it suffers just without any kind of change. Like the person's life might not have changed at all. They might be in the same headspace but they just can't keep doing it at the level they were doing it, or it changed in a way that people don't like, or, you know, whatever it is. So that can happen on its own, but then when somebody does go through a transformation, it changes things too, and you, you look at Leonard Cohen, who, that's another artist, like, kind of like the Smiths, like, Leonard Cohen is an artist I overlooked for many years, and really didn't come to appreciate Leonard Cohen until recent years. But he's a guy who, you know, his early music is undeniably dark, for what it was and when it was, it's undeniably dark. And he, you know, he became a monk. You know, you think about MB, MB. And uh, I don't know, I don't know why that's so funny to me to say it that way. I guess because it's just it, MB. Um, and his name, Maurizio, Maurizio Bianchi, I believe is his real name. Uh, hence MB. His name's Maurizio Bianchi, but... Uh, you know, MB stands for something else. But uh, Leonard Cohen, you know, you know, he's it's well known that he went through that process of transformation where he stopped making music entirely. He devoted himself to explicitly spiritual practices. And then he returned and his music was substantially different, kind of like MB. He came out of the woodwork 
and his music was completely different. And a lot of people liked it. A lot of people were still interested in it, but it was undeniably different after he went through this transformation. Would it have been different anyway? You know, this is almost like some annoying philosophical question, but like if Leonard Cohen had never left music and he had stayed, he had just kept making music from the beginning to the end without becoming a monk, without going through some kind of transformation, would he have still ended up making the music he made later? And, you know, I was introduced to Leonard Cohen through Pump Up the Volume, the movie Pump Up the Volume, without even knowing who Leonard Cohen was. And it should be, it goes without saying that Pump Up the Volume changed my life. I had a girlfriend, and I wasn't doing this show. Like, I had already started doing this show because I've been doing this for a long time. But I had a girlfriend for a couple years, and I wasn't actively doing this show. I took a break. I took a couple years off from this show which I forget about. I do, I do so many darn episodes now. I forget that I took such a long break in the middle of all this, but, uh, it's my own transfer, which I, I, there might be some truth to that. I I think I kind of went through a transformation actually with this show where I took a break and then I, I emerged kind of with a different tone. Oh God, I can't believe, I can't believe that. Did you know this, this show is like Leonard Cohen. Did you know that I'm just like Leonard Cohen when I do this show? Uh, but but anyway, you know, I had this girlfriend. We watched Pump Up the Volume together because that's been one of my favorite movies since I was a little kid. And I'm sure, like, speaking of planting the seed of inspiration, I'm sure Pump Up the Volume planted the seed for me to, like, want to be an underground radio host. Absolutely. I will I will happily say that Pump Up the Volume influenced me. And I didn't know it at the time. Like, when I started doing this show, I wasn't thinking, oh, it's just like Pump Up the Volume. I'm Christian Slater. Christian Slater. I didn't think that at all. Uh, But uh, it was there. It was somewhere in there. But I remember that we were watching that movie, and this girlfriend, she kept being like, is that you? She was making fun of me. And I love being made fun of. But uh, she was like, is that, oh, you? Oh, is that you? You know, she was just making that joke. But I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, that movie opens with, a, with a, a new Leonard Cohen song. Like, that opens with a, a later Leonard Cohen song, which is interesting. And I, I would have heard—so I heard that song when I was, like, five years old, and I saw Pump Up the Volume for the first time. But I didn't know who Leonard Cohen was or what that was. So it's interesting that I've always heard Leonard Cohen, but I just never realized who or what it was. And it wasn't until later that I realized— wasn't until much later that I realized who he was and what he was all about. And if you look around, I mean, even Cat Stevens and I, you know, I can I can kind of relate Leonard Cohen to MB <laughs> in the sense that I think that what they were doing was dark. And I think it reflects somebody who was in a legitimately dark place when they made their early music. And then they reemerged and, you know, le- later Leonard Cohen, it's not like that's light and fluffy by any means. But it's at least he he changed personally in some way, and and his music changed. And I wouldn't compare Cat Stevens to those guys, because, you know, you think about early Cat Stevens, you think about Cat Stevens in general, and I would never say his music was dark that I can think of. But he's another guy who went through a spiritual transformation. In his case, you know, he devoted his life to Islam, and... I don't know. Does, I think he still made music. I don't remember. He might have stopped to, for a while, too. But he's another example of, like, music led him there. Krishnadas. You know, I think about Krishnadas sometimes because he's credited as the first singer of Blue Oyster Cult. And I don't know what that means. 
Like, I don't know if, because, I mean, he's not on any, any recordings or anything. It might have been as simple as, like, at their first rehearsal, he jammed with them on vocals, and now Krishna Das is considered the first vocalist. I don't know how it actually works. I don't even know if they were called Blue Oyster Cult when Krishna Das was a member, and his name certainly wasn't Krishna Das at the time. But he's another guy where, like, the fact is, is that he was the singer for Blue Oyster Cult, and that preceded him quitting everything in life and moving to India for years, where he went through a spiritual transformation and returned and continued making music that certainly isn't rock and roll. It's certain, I don't know what all he's done, but if you listen to Krishna Das's music, it's like he plays the harmonium and chants. Certainly not Blue Oyster Cult. And so you can see where he went through some kind of process, and it, it wasn't as drawn out because he didn't, he didn't like record records when he was young that, that sounded like he didn't record dark records early on, but it's, I do wonder how his experience like playing with blue oyster cult and hanging out in those circles might've influenced his decision to quit everything and move to India and devote himself to spiritual, to a spiritual process for years that he then committed himself to for life you know, and uh, including through his music. I do wonder, like, what was going on at the time? Like, did music grate on his soul? Because that's something I want to get into here, and it's something that I think is worth bringing up with MB, with Leonard Cohen, with, uh, you know, Cat Stevens, with Krishna Das, you know, with all these people, and, and there's probably many more examples there's something about being involved with music that grates on your soul. And I don't know that any of those artists, they would probably all say that it was their own personal shit. And it always is. But like, I know that like when I was much more involved with like music scenes, it grated on me. And I think it brought out the worst in me. And this seems to happen in both the underground and the mainstream where it grates on your soul. And I don't think it's a coincidence that music has a, such a higher rate of suicide than other art forms. Not to say that other forms of art, not to say that other artists in other fields don't commit suicide, because of course they do, and obviously not musicians aren't all just jumping off cliffs and shooting themselves, but we do, we have these famous examples, and when we think about tragic artists who kill themselves, we immediately think of musicians. And there are the very famous examples, but I was listening to Jimmy Donnelly, a guy who I played on a, an early Every Night to School night, and he killed himself. I think he was in his 30s. I can't remember how old he was. He was a kind of like a, a Creole rocker. I think he, I don't know if he was Creole, but he, he was a New Orleans scene kind of guy. A very beautiful voice involved with Fats Domino, and he killed himself. And so, you know, it just seems to be something that is far closer correlated with music than any other art form. And I would say it's, you know, suicide is always personal. You know, it's not like I'm saying, oh, you know why musicians kill themselves at a higher rate, whether it's in the underground or the mainstream? It's because music scenes, great on your soul, music scenes make you kill yourself. Well, I would say, while that's not true, I think that they contribute. There's something about the nature of music that on one hand is so expansive and life affirming, but there's also something about it that I think like whether, whether like, again, it's, it's not exclusive to like the underground or the mainstream or something completely independent. It could even be bar rock. I don't know. I don't, I don't know a lot about bar rock, 
local bar rock, bar rock, bar, bar rock Obama. How come I haven't made that joke? Um, oh, are you talking about uh, Barack Manil Obama or Bar Rock Obama? Um, but uh, I, I don't know. There's just something I've I've observed it throughout my interest, and it just seems like art or music in particular can really bring out the the demon inside of you. And I even notice it myself because like I, like there were a few years where I deliberately cut myself off from let's just go specifically and say industrial noise, experimental, ambient music, like, because I felt that it really brought out the worst in me. I was a huge asshole. And while some of that I feel was justified because I think it's good to have people with a critical mind involved in these things, I think it it, it pushed me and I think it pushes other people as well if they're not too sensitive. I also look back and it's like, I didn't like being that way. I didn't like having that kind of attitude it's it's not sustainable as a person to be that way your entire life. You got to change, I feel like, and, and or you do start looking at suicide or you just live a miserable life. You know, you don't want to like, I'm glad I didn't look at these old interviews I did and say, oh, gee, I still feel that way. Or I'm glad I didn't look back and, gee, and say, gee, you were so open minded and open hearted then. And now I'm closed. You know, I'm glad it's it's. I'm glad that the the dynamic is what it is, but you know, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, like I, I became friends with a couple of people who were involved. They were new to me, new people, new friends, and they were involved in some things that I had previously been involved in, but had ignored for years. And while these friends were awesome, you know, they were they're great people. Like just being with them and talking about that world. I could, I could tell that no matter like how, how much work I had done on myself, no matter like how my attitude about life had changed, it was like being too aware of what was going on in that world was bringing out that old part of me. And, uh, (laughs) there's this meme that, uh, I like, and I'm not a meme guy. I, I hesitate. Meme's a word that I was reluctant to use, like selfie, like educator, but I saw this meme and it's Bugs Bunny in a suit looking like a gangster and he's holding like an old fashioned pistol, you know, like a, uh, not a musket, but like the pistol version of that, whatever that's called, like an old duel, like a dueling pistol, a dual pistol, D-U-E-L pistol. And it's Bugs Bunny holding that up and it says... You know, it's something the effect of like, I'm going to have to go back to the old me. And it's something that you can imagine like trashy people posting on their Facebooks. Like you can imagine like some uh, like white trash dude who like sold drugs and cleaned up his life and has a family and like something sets him off. And he's like, I'm going to have to go back to the old me. And that's best represented by a meme of Bugs Bunny holding a smoking pistol, wearing a suit. But, like, I can't make fun of that guy because I I relate to that, where sometimes I have these moments where I'm like, I'm going to have to go back to the old me. And it's when something pisses me off. Or when I find that I'm, like, looking at something that used to bother me 
and I ignored it for years and now I'm looking at it again. And it's not like, you know, I don't have any ill will toward people who were involved in like a scene that I was involved in or anything like that. I love those people. I really do. It really is the friends you made along the way sort of thing for me. But uh, I did find that, oh, like there are some things where no matter how much I've changed, no matter how much my outlook has changed, if I pay too close of attention to that thing, it's going to set me off again. It's going to put me on the wrong track again. So like in meeting these people a couple years ago, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, you know what? Like, well, it's awesome to meet these new friends and it's kind of cool to keep tabs and, and, you know, maintain ties. I was just like, there's I, there's no time where I can go back to this completely. And first of all, like my interests and stuff have, have veered in different directions, too. I just don't have the time and the money and different things to get into that. But it was just definitely a moment where I was like, oh, I feel like I'm going to have to become the old me if I if I want to be involved with this again. And that's not good. But you can flirt with that. You know, you can kind of flirt with that feeling like it's in the same way that like you don't want to pretend that, like I think the worst thing you can do, not the worst, but a bad thing you can do is be like, I've changed completely for the same reason that I, you don't you don't say I'm a pacifist and I'll never do violence. That's when you get tricked and do something violent. I think it's the same thing when you say I've transformed and changed and I'll never be that person again. That's when you trick yourself. And it's better to remind yourself of that when you don't have something in your face. Like I've been talking to a friend who's going through a very difficult personal time and he's dealing with some, you know, some issues related to people in his life and I'm not going to say too much about it, but just you know, he said to me yesterday, and I don't, I don't think he'd be upset about me saying this, um, but he, he said that he feels like he's fighting off these invisible enemies. And in that situation, you know, I, I just try to listen. You know, in that situation, like, people don't necessarily want to hear your bullshit. Like, I'm not going to talk to him the way I'm talking here. But in response to the, him saying that, I thought that was really interesting. And I did, I was like, you know what, like, here's what I'll say about that it's a great thing that you feel like you're fighting invisible enemies because you're fighting, but you're not like directing your anger toward anybody specifically. Cause he could, he's in a situation where he could direct his anger at a specific person and, or specific more than one person. Actually, he could direct his anger at more than one specific person and be justified. I feel that he could justify that very easily, but the fact that he feels that he's fighting, invisible enemies means that he's fighting and he's keeping that muscle going and he's not in denial about how he's feeling. He's not saying, oh, I feel, I'm going through a shitty time and I feel great. I feel peaceful. Everything's perfect. He's not lying to himself. He's not saying I'm a pacifist. He's saying, I feel like I'm fighting invisible enemies. And I was like, that's the perfect place to be in because you're staying sharp. You're staying aware. You're not directing your anger toward any specific person. But you're also not in denial. And when you're doing that, when you're like, I feel like I'm fighting some sort of like invisible enemy. It's like getting that out of your system without necessarily like doing something you regret. You know, it's like you're simply aware of what's going on. And when you're aware of what's going on, you're less likely to step on that cartoon Scooby-Doo haunted house floorboard that flies up and hits you in the face. You're less likely to step on that rake that flies up and like hits you just so perfectly in the nose that it shatters every bone in your nose. 
and you're disfigured forever. You know what I mean? Because that's what happens when you assume, that's what happens like for me, like I have to constantly remind myself that while I've changed for the better, in my opinion, not everyone would agree, maybe, while I've changed for the better, you know, I can't be too confident in that. I can't assume that that a situation won't come where I circle back or where the old Bugs Bunny me comes back. You know, I can't assume that that's impossible because if I think that I've beat if I think that I've beaten the game, that's how you set yourself up. And uh, I, you know, I, I think that's true for sobriety as well. I think it's true for drinking as well. I've I've known that all along through the process of quitting drinking, where. I haven't drank for over three years, and it's been easy. And I hate saying that because I know for other people it's really hard, but it it was really easy for me ever since I made the decision to quit drinking. But I don't want to tell myself it's easy. I want to still feel like I'm fighting invisible enemies like my friend is in his situation. I got to remind myself that even though I don't feel like there's this big bottle looming over me saying, drink me, come on, drink me. Even though I don't feel that way, I have to kind of imagine I'm fighting an invisible version of that. I have to kind of remind myself that I'm not, I haven't beaten the game. You know, and I don't know a good RPG comparison for that because you do eventually beat RPGs. But I can't tell myself I've beaten the game. And, you know, I think you beat the game when you die. No matter how you die. I think you kind of beat the game when you die. And that's the right side of history is death. You know, I I know I talked about it recently, but I, I truly feel that way. I feel the right side of history is death. And that doesn't mean that I'm not glorifying death. It's just that that's the bottom line to me. And you don't embrace death in the same way I was talking about earlier. You don't say like, oh, I love death. Oh, because I handled death well, because I have a healthy attitude about death, I love death. You don't, why would you want to invite that? But you can, you know, look at that and be like, you know, I can be comfortable with this while reminding myself that at some point I could potentially step on a floorboard that hits me in the face and knocks me off balance like a Scooby-Doo villain. You know, that could easily happen, so I have to be careful where I step. I can't be too confident, because we do live in a Scooby-Doo haunted house sometimes, which you have to remind yourself when you're thinking, life is great. Oh, hey, don't you realize life is great? Why don't you just smile more? And you know what your problem is, is you don't smile enough. You know what your problem is, is that uh, you wear dark clothing. You know what your problem is? You need some bright, flashy clothing so that you and the economy can get a boost. (laughs) you know you don't want to have that attitude either because that's an oppressive form of positivity sometimes you have to accept that life can be a haunted house but during the day a haunted house is awesome during the day a haunted house is just a cool old house so that's life to me (laughs) life to me is is a reminder of that is being like during the day life is just a beautiful old Victorian house and you admire the architecture and want to explore every nook and cranny. And then at night you're terrified 
And even the floorboards are out to get you. And there might be a group of kids breaking into your house to rip your mask off. After you've like done something stupid to like get tangled up in rope that was just laying around the, the haunted mansion. You know, that's life to me. And uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know what to say for artists who kill themselves. Because there was a point in time, like, you know, I'm not afraid to speak candidly about this, where I saw suicide as a very distinct option. There was a point in my life where I really thought, you know, there might be a point, you know. I was never actively suicidal, but I used to think there might be a point where I'm just done with this. I hear a frog. I hear a, I hear a frog. Um, but uh, there was a point where I was like, you know, there might be a point where I'm just done with this. And you know what? Honestly, if I had stayed on the path I was on, I think that that would have happened. I think if I had stayed on the path I would on, I was on, I would on. If I had stayed on the path I would on, uh, I would have possibly killed myself. I'm not going to say I would have. I don't know what that alternate timeline is like. Because, I mean, I think when you get into alternate timelines and like what could have been or should have been or any of that, something, if the thing that prompted you to go down the path that you're currently on didn't happen, something else could have done it and, and the same thing could have happened. But because it happened the way it did, there is no other possibility. And I don't think about these, oh, there's a million different universes where there's a version of you doing different things. I like that idea. I like thinking about the fact that there's an infinite number of possibilities and those possibilities can be playing out. But like, that's just, that's such an out there idea. And I know I like out there ideas, but it's like, it's, it's not a useful thing for me to think about because I know in this lifetime that I went down a certain path, that certain things prompted that path, that other people went down certain paths, certain things prompted that path. And it's almost like talking about my friend who unintentionally got me into running. Like, if he didn't get me into running, was there an alternate timeline where somebody else did? I don't know, because it didn't happen. Was there an alternate timeline where I would be dead now? Where I would have blasted myself? Where I would have, like, done something horrible to myself to, to leave this world? You know, why even think about that? Because that's not what happened. But... The timeline is continuing, and I don't want to tell myself, I will never say, to, for all the same reasons I've talked about in the last you know, half hour or so, I never want to say to myself, oh, I'm never going to commit suicide. Because the second I say that means that like, I'm not keeping that muscle strong. I'd rather suicide remain an invisible enemy, even though I don't feel it, even though, I, even though like, the idea to me of killing myself sounds incredibly absurd. I don't want to tell myself it's some impossibility because that way my muscle is going to get weak and there might be a moment where life manifests in an ungentle way and I don't want to be weak when I deal with that. And to be totally honest too, it's like I've been thinking about this lately, you know, where life has been stressful. My life has felt really stressful personally and the world feels stressful and anytime that happens, there is something in the back of your mind that says, why don't I just drive up to the lake and just like wade out into the lake and just 
die. You know, not that I've actually considered that, you know, like obviously it should be obvious from what I've been saying that that's not something in my mind, but it's just that anytime life becomes stressful and you are tested, there will always be like something in the back of your mind that knows that's an option. And that's healthier than being like, nope, nope, never suicide. Nope, nope, nope. You know, it's, it's better than, I sound like, I sound like a cartoon character there. Uh, but, uh, it's better to know that that's an option, but to see it as an extremely unlikely option than it is to tell yourself it's not an option at all. You know, I think it's better to look at even negative possibilities that way than it is to deny them. Because denial is a problem. You know, denial is just one of the biggest issues. And, you know, I'm of the opinion... God, am I, am I really going to say this? I'm of the opinion that it is a river in Egypt. I'm, the opinion, I'm of the opinion that denial is that same river in Egypt, folks. That's my most out there idea, that denial, D-E-N-I-A-L, is in fact a river in Egypt. The thing that really sucks about this show is when I'm doing it, I don't drink my coffee. I'm like, I gesture. I probably look like a voice actor. You know, I've always been horrified by the sight of whenever like they show footage of a cartoon, like the recording of the voices for cartoons and you see like Robin Williams, like putting his hand up and like making a face and like doing this thing that's very performative. Like I used to watch those and be like, God, why do you need to do that just to do just to do voice acting? Like, why do you need to gesture with your hands and make these like snarling faces? And just so you know, I made a snarling face right there. Uh, But like, since I've started doing this show, like, even though there's no camera on me, and even though like, it has no direct impact that you would think, I'm gesturing and I'm doing like hand motions and I'm like clenching my fist and I have my coffee cup in my hand and I'm like lifting it and lowering it. And I'm like this maestro I'm making faces. You know, it's funny how my perception, has the world changed or have I changed? Well, I used to think that voice actors were doing some stupid performance for the camera when it would show them recording the the cartoon voices. But it turns out that's actually effective when you're doing some sort of voice thing, voice thing. When you're, you know, recording your voice and you're doing things with your voice, it turns out gesturing actually helps you say what you want to say and do what you want to do. It's funny that way, but it does suck because like I spend the entire, I mean, it's been an hour and 40 minutes and I barely sip my coffee because I'm talking continuously. And that was a sip, just so you know, that, that moment, that moment in time was a sip. Um, and in, and in some way too, this show, (laughs) this show, um, This show is almost like a stimulant. I mean, it is because sometimes like I'll be really groggy and tired and I'll, I'll be having like I did drink one cup of coffee before this, which isn't enough to stimulate me. One cup of coffee is not enough to get me going. And so I'd only had one cup before I started recording today. But this show is a stimulant because it's like I start talking and then all of a sudden, like, I can't believe the amount of energy I have. I cannot believe the amount of energy I had. Like, I thought this was going to be a really, you know, just 
Hey, welcome to the chill Sunday night school. Have you ever thought about how uh, life is just kind of this process of gradual change? You know, I thought that this episode was going to be like that. But it just shows you that, like, your mind can be stimulated by just hitting the record button. And if you've ever performed in any way, I mean, I think you'd realize that, uh, like, getting on stage, which I've done relatively little of. But it's kind of like what you hear about, like, guys like Donny Osmond, who... Growing up, I saw like something on TV where they were like, Donny Osmond has severe anxiety. He has debilitating anxiety. And he, he like dreads, he has to practically like drag himself on stage. Meanwhile, he's on TV. Meanwhile, he's a singer who's performed his entire life on stage. But I think it's kind of similar where like, for me, like I can be the groggiest person in the world, but I hit record and next thing you know, I'm just like flying through walls. I think it's kind of the same thing where like sometimes performers, they have this initial anxiety or like debilitating anxiety, like our boy Donnie, Donnie Trumpsfeld Osmond. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and then he gets on stage and it's gone. It's like something changes in his brain chemistry. The science, the science is there. The science is in something changes in your brain chemistry. Something gets reconciled. Because you'd think that that would be a contradiction. You'd think that that would be a hypocrisy. The idea that, oh, somebody has debilitating anxiety, yet is capable of hamming it up on stage. Or like, you know, in my case, because it's all about me, this is the me show. Me show. Hey, me show. You heard of the name me show? Well, I'm me show. Um, like in my case, like, I'm, I'm a pretty withdrawn person. And most people who know me would say that I, I don't necessarily say a lot. And you'd think like, oh, that's kind of contradictory that you're also this huge ham. Like on, on social media, or you're this huge ham sometimes. You do a podcast where you're a huge ham. Hey, ham. Hey, Eric Ham. Is your name Eric Ham? Um, you know, it's... That's kind of a contradiction, too, but it's the whole of who I am in the same way that Donny Osmond, Donny Trumpsfeld Osmond, who I'm exactly like. Did you ever know I'm exactly like Donny Trumpsfeld Osmond? But in the same way that he his life somehow reconciles the fact that he has severe anxiety, yet gets on stage and is able to perform professionally, expertly, (laughs) expertly. you know, in the same way that his life, the wholeness of his individual life is that, you know, I feel that way too, where it's like, I don't know, you, you have your, your places and you do get more comfortable. I was talking to a, a new friend of mine uh, about this show because I've been saying how like I want to, you know, I've been, I've been saying this for over seven years. The show has been running now for over seven years and I've been saying that entire time, oh, I'm going to have miles on someday. Like it probably like people probably listen to this show and they hear me talk about Miles or Nick or these other friends of mine who I talk to a lot. Like these are like I bring up those friends not because because I mean I have other friends who you know are are equally as important to me, but like those two friends for me 
have been pivotal as far as like in-depth discussion go. Like those two friends have made points and brought things up to me throughout our lives that have fundamentally changed my view on things or have added to my view. So it's not like I play favorites with friends or anything like that. It's that like, I don't have a top 10 friend list, but it's like certain people have gone, they've cut to the bone on these discussions, like way deeper than anybody else in my life ever has. And I've wanted to have both those friends on here at some point, And I've been saying that for seven and a half years and people probably think I make up my friends. I mean, even if you look at like the comments on Joe Rogan episodes, Joe Rogan, like something, if you've listened to his show, he'll say, a buddy of mine, a buddy of mine uh, did this. And like, I've read the comments because I'm actually fascinated on a sociological level, how people respond to popular podcasts. It's kind of weird, you know, and it's interesting to me, though, to see like how the how how having a large audience impacts like people's response because in my case having a tiny audience there is an intimacy where like if you contact me and tell me you listen to my show whether I know you or don't know you I feel like we're friends like I instantly I mean dude you're stroking my ego (laughs) you know like a good way to be my friend you know is to tell me you listen to my show I guess or or to scare me Sometimes I'm scared when someone says they've heard my show, but, uh, you know, I'll read the comment sections on like a Joe Rogan thing and someone will be like, do you ever think Joe Rogan like makes is making it up when he says a buddy of mine to the point where I've even seen memes to invoke the word, the, the word meme again. I'm a selfie meme educator. Welcome to the future. Um, but people will be like, Joe Rogan, you know, he always says a buddy of mine said this or a buddy of mine did that. I think he's lying. And it's like that guy has more friends than you could ever imagine. Like that guy has more friends. Maybe not. You know, I don't know. Maybe I, I'm assuming something. But like that guy has so many friends, it's unbelievable. He doesn't need to make up fake friends. Like, well, I think like when you do a podcast, you might do like kind of composites of people for their own protection you know, just because, just because I think it's, it's healthy to kind of maybe in some cases make composites when you're making points. I do, you know, you know, it's like the fact that people listen to Joe Rogan and it's become a meme when he says a buddy of mine and people like accuse him of lying about that. It blows my mind, but you know, it's like someone could listen to this show. If you if you're a big enough fan to the point where you like remember which friends that I regularly reference, it's probably like, oh, he doesn't have those friends. He's talking about his other personalities. But I was talking to a new friend who is a real person, uh, Aaron with an E, E R E N, and uh, I was telling him how like I I really want to have friends on here. I haven't quite figured out how to do it remotely. I know there's ways that people can call in, but I don't like the idea of something that sounds like a Skype call. And one time I tried figuring it out, but my friend froze up. I had a friend, we were all ready to do an episode. Not, I mean, we weren't ready, (laughs) but we were trying it. We were playing around with it. And the second I told him, first of all, I, I couldn't get it to work. But when I told him that I had hit record, this person who is normally normally talks to me at length on the phone, he froze up because he had never done this before. 
And uh, when you haven't sat there in front of a microphone and gone off at length, that muscle, it doesn't work. You know, it's, it's like trying to lift something heavy without gradually building up to it. And I, you know, I don't re-listen to old episodes of this show. I'm not that crazy, not that narcissistic. But there was a time not that long ago where just out of sheer curiosity, just to hear the audio quality, that's my justification for narcissism. I'm just trying, to, I'm just listening for the audio quality. I'm listening to myself so I can hear the audio quality, okay? Um, I was listening to the very first Every Night's a School Night episode from 2013, and I, I could hear the shakiness in my voice. At the time, I remember being happy. I remember thinking like, oh, that went better than I thought. I was able to talk better than I thought. I could hear the shakiness in my voice. I could hear my nerves. And now I wish that I had more of that. Like, I wish I could get some of that back. I wish I could get some of that juice, that nerve juice back. Because I feel like I'm too comfortable. And when I do listen back for the audio quality, sometimes I say to myself, God, you know, like, why don't you reel it in a little more? Why don't you talk quieter? Why don't you, uh, you know, right now, why are you talking about this? Why am I talking about this? But no, I think it's always better to look back at yourself and say, like, I'm glad that I, you know, anyway, to close that idea out, just that, like, one of the issues with, like, friends, because, you know, you look at popular podcasts, and most of their guests are people that are comfortable talking. They're people who either have their own platforms or they're famous, so they're used to being heard or watched. And every once in a while, though, like a big podcast will have a guest who you can tell has never done an interview before. They've done relatively few. Like maybe they're an author and they're typically only heard in writing or they're only people only read their work and you can kind of hear a shakiness in their voice. And that's kind of interesting. They stammer. They, they repeat certain words because those are signs of nerves is when somebody repeats the same word a lot. Like if you've ever been on a date with a girl or, 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 you know, and you find yourself saying that's peculiar. Do you know what's peculiar? Oh, you know, I was thinking about something peculiar or she's saying it. It's like a tick. Like you'll find yourself stuck on a certain word and it's because you're nervous and they're aware of it, and you're aware of it, and it's just your nerves. And it's it's funny, though, how that comes out, where, like, you get stuck on a certain word. And, uh, that's, yeah, it's often a sign of nerves. But uh, it's, it's always just interesting to me when you pick up on that, listening to somebody, where they go, oh, they're nervous. But the difference is with me, the sort of people that I want to have on this show, eventually, someday, this, epi- this show's going to be 20 years in, it's going to be 2033, the 20-year anniversary. I'm going to have my first guest. Um, but uh, the problem is, is that the people I want to have on this show are people who have never talked on a recording before. And uh, they're, I think they'd be nervous, so there's that too. And so I was telling a, a new friend of mine about that. I was like, you know, I really want to have people on here. But first of all, there's the technological side, which would end up sounding like a Skype call, which I don't like. There's that Skype delay and that Skype echo. 
it happens. Like now it's the Zoom, the Zome. You know, that sounds the same way too. So while I, I could Zome somebody in, I don't really like that idea. Somebody would have to be sitting here with me and they would also have to be comfortable to be, you know, which is why like this part of me, like there have been times where I've been on the phone with a friend and I think like if I could just record this without their knowledge, it would make an incredible episode. Like if I could just like hit the record button in my phone and it would make a listenable recording of what we're talking about, that'd be wonderful, but that's horrible. Like after the, after the conversation, like, it's like, Oh, Hey, I got to go, man. Good talking to you. Oh, by the way, I've been recording our entire conversation without your knowledge and I'm going to put it online. Cause that, cause the thing is, even though like that would be ideal, like, even though I wish that I could just like give people a voyeuristic view into a, a phone conversation with a friend that I think would be genuinely interesting. We also say things that even for me, I wouldn't want people to hear, not just personal things, but offensive things, you know? So it's like, that's the other side of it too, is that while I wish I could just document a personal private conversation, the reality of doing that is there are going to be things in there and I don't like to edit things. I don't, you know, I don't believe in editing. So anyway, we're, we're hitting two hours here, but I think it's a good day for a two hour episode. I'm taking it real easy taking it real easy today because I've been in overdrive just going through my archives going through everything you know reading old interviews with myself you know a lot of a lot of vanity a lot of narcissism um, a lot of everything a lot of everything because that's what life's all about it's a whole lot of everything and because life is a whole lot of everything you know, you don't got to worry about, you know, unless, unless something is a violation of your ethics, just to go back to my horoscope. And I can't believe the start of this was just talking about astrology, but to go back to the start of this episode, and this all came about because my horoscope said not to worry about hypocrisy, not just in yourself, but in others as well. And that's important because whenever I talk about hypocrisy and contradiction on here, I'm always talking about your own internal contradiction, your own internal hypocrisy, and whether or not that's something that you can balance, whether or not it's something you can reconcile, whether it's something that takes away from your morals or your ethics, which I think is always bad. I think any kind of contradiction or hypocrisy that actually undermines what you believe in is bad. But there are many other examples where the contemporary narcissism of the society and culture that you're in might be lying to you about what's contradictory or hypocritical. And so because of that, you should be willing to at least try out whether or not these things can be balanced together or whether they're actually harmonious in a way that you didn't realize whether they can be joined you know it's a maybe maybe those two things that you thought were at war with each other in your mind are actually a Siamese twin and they might have different heads but they share the same body and can be reconciled that way maybe they share the same dicky oh yeah those two ideas that you have in your head that seem completely different yeah they have two separate brains they're different ideas, but they share the same dicky. They all, they piss from the same place. You know, maybe that's thing. So I tend to focus on contradictory and hypocritical things inwardly, like your own process. But 
my horoscope reminded me this morning, and this is why horoscopes can be powerful, is it reminded me not to worry about that in other people. Because I, to be totally honest, I've been very critical of other people's hypocrisy right now. Whether you're a Trumpsfeld supporter who uh, criticized the riots last summer and is now defending the riot in D.C. that happened, whether you're, I, I mean, the, the laundry list of leftist hypocrisies right now is insane. I don't even, I'm not even going to go into that. Um, but there's a lot of hypocrisy in the air. There's a lot of contradiction in the air. And it's very easy for me to look at that and say, look at you. Look at you, you hypocrites. You know, it's very easy for me to get self-righteous about that, even though one of my whole core philosophies is it's okay to be hypocritical because that's how you learn what's reconcilable inside of you and what's not. And that helps you level up. So I need to look at other people and be like, maybe they're just figuring it out and trying to level up themselves. And while I won't let their hypocrisy and contradiction indict me, I won't let their nonsense press on me. I also don't want to point my finger at them. And, and the horoscope said, you know, if you point your finger, four fingers might point back at you. And the, the specificity of that, the specificity of that uh interested me. I was like, why did they say four fingers? What did they mean by four fingers? Because like when the, when the horoscope said that four fingers might be pointed back at you, I imagined one hand with all four of its fingers pointed at me. <laughs> I imagined a hand like with like, like the, if you watched pro wrestling, you know, like the four horsemen, their, their symbol, their, their hand, their gang sign was uh, to hold four fingers up with the thumb tucked in. And it's like, I'm imagining that, but like pointed at me and it's like four fingers, but, but now I'm like, oh, maybe it means four different people with their fingers, or maybe it means two people with their, with one finger on each hand pointed at you. What did my horoscope mean by four fingers pointed back? Oh, maybe they just randomly threw that number out. (laughs) Maybe they just randomly threw that number out. But we'll see. Maybe my horoscope is true. And if, I'm, if I were to worry too much about other people's hypocrisies right now, maybe there are four specific people with four specific fingers who would point at me. Maybe there are four people who would come down on me. I don't know. But, you know, here we are over two hours. I don't think we need this to go three hours. I got stuff I got to do. So, uh, you know, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for listening as always. And, uh, you know, learn how to manage your own hypocrisies, but listen to my horoscope (laughs) because it turns out my horoscope isn't just for me. It's for you too. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to make that joke. Uh, it's for Bono. It's for, it's for Bono. Oh, are you a fan of Bono? Um, uh, it's for you too. It's for me. Because it turns out, this is something my friend Nick told me that I haven't done, but he told me if you actually want to get into astrology, you have to read everybody's horoscope because everybody's horoscope impacts you. And I haven't gone that far with it. And Batty's barking. He's letting me know it's time. So, uh, 
you know, just remember that, like learn how to reconcile and manage your own hypocrisies. And you might find out they're not even hypocritical and don't be so hard on other people's hypocrisies as long as they're not pressing those hypocrisies on you as, as long as their hypocrisy is not an attack on you. Thank you for listening. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.